Hello, and welcome to the Ram Gad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economou, and this is my podcast. I have a great interview for you all today with Kelly King, but before we get into that, let me give you a quick update. It's a busy week for the county council, but there aren't necessarily a lot of issues on the agendas that I want to highlight for you. It seems to be that time of year where the council is doing a lot of housekeeping in preparation for the upcoming budget session. Nevertheless, there are some things in the works that you should be aware of for the very near future. In particular, I want to share some news with you about a piece of legislation I got to look at. I got a copy of a draft ordinance coming out of Councilmember Paulton's office that would essentially undo the Minnetoya opinion, effective January 15th, 2024. This legislation has not made it onto any agendas yet, and we don't have a timeline for when it would make it through the council. But we are concerned. For those of you who might not be familiar with this issue, the Minnetoya opinion, uh, let me give you the, the highlights. So under Maui County Code, Chapter 19.12.020G, related to apartment districts, one of the permitted uses for apartment zone condominiums is, quote, transient vacation rentals in buildings and structures having building permits, special management area use permits, or planned development approval that were lawfully issued by and valid on April 20th, 1989. Buildings and structures with such permits and approvals may be reconstructed and transient vacation rental use shall be permitted provided that one, the reconstruction conforms to the original building permit plans, special management area use permits, or plan development approval, and two, the reconstruction complies with building codes and other applicable laws in effect at the time of the reconstruction. Now, the draft legislation coming out of Councilmember Politan's office that I got to look at adds a third paragraph at the bottom, which says, This subsection G is repealed effective January 15th, 2024, and transient vacation rental use shall no longer be permitted thereafter in such buildings and structures unless the owner has complied with Maui County Code section 19.65.030. That's the STRH and B&B homes. Now, in my view, this would lead to a lot of costly litigation, and it would greatly diminish the county's tax revenue. And there are various other arguments as to why this is a bad idea. Uh, A lot of these properties are not well suited for long-term housing or long-term affordable housing. Uh, They have high maintenance costs. I'm, I'm working on a more comprehensive report regarding why I think this legislation is a bad idea. But for the time being, while I'm researching that, I want you all to be aware of what's going on. And I want you to know that we're working on it. And I also want to encourage you to feel free to reach out to your county council representatives and share your thoughts. We'll do the same on our part, and we'll keep on fighting the good fight for the positions that RAM has uh, traditionally supported. But we can sure use your help and uh, more input from our members. Uh, Along similar lines, we're still working on a potential short-term rental home phase-out plan that I discussed last week, but there hasn't really been any movement on that front, so I don't have any news that I want to share with you right now. Nevertheless, you can still feel free to reach out to your county council representatives or the mayor's office and share with them what your feelings are and what your thoughts are on such legislation. Now, let me, uh, let me share some, some opportunities for community engagement. We have the West Maui Community Plan process still underway. The Community Plan Advisory Committee has another meeting scheduled for this week on Thursday, February 20th at 5.30 p.m. in the Social Hall at the Lahaina Civic Center. And for any of the past meetings or, or any information as to what they're up to and agendas for future meetings, you can go to wearemaui.org and check out the CPAC page in the upper right-hand corner. Um, If you want to get more hands-on, Habitat for Humanity's 12th annual Build-A-Thon is coming up. So that's Friday, February 21st, and Saturday, February 22nd for Habitat Maui's annual Build-A-Thon. The Build-A-Thon is a public awareness and fundraising event 
Participants are asked to raise a minimum of $100 per person in pledges and spend a day on the construction site helping Habitat build affordable housing in Lahaina. Lunch, snack, and door prizes will be provided, and available times are from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. If you want to sign up or you want more information, go ahead and call 808-242-1140. Once again, that number is 808-242-1140. Now, for today, my interview was with Kelly King. Uh, Kelly King was the council chair. Now she is the head of the Climate Action and Resiliency Committee. I had a wonderful uh, conversation with Councilmember King. I am always impressed when I, I get a chance to sit down with her. She is just a, a forward-thinking person, and, and she's, she's a wise business person as well. So I, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. I certainly learned a lot about um, Councilmember King's past experience in business and, and just about, you know, how she thinks um, in terms of, of the future and um, in terms of planning ahead. So I really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down with her and chat with her, and I think you'll enjoy this interview. It's a pretty short one, so it's not too much of a commitment. I highly recommend listening to it, and feel free to um, to get back to me with any any notes or thoughts on the interview. All right, for now, on to the interview. Hello, I am joined today by Councilmember Kelly King. Uh, she is the council member for the South Maui Residency Area and chair of the new Climate Action and Resiliency Committee. Good afternoon, Kelly. Good afternoon, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Let's just go ahead and jump right in. So. When did you come to Maui? I came to Maui in 79. I think it was the last, uh, the last year there were absolutely no stoplights on the island. <laughs> the paper came three days a week. Uh, it was a really um, a much slower time. That I think the, uh, the population was somewhere around 40,000 people on the island. And uh, it was a you know it was a fun time because you're here as a kid basically. My intent, my original intent was I, you know, I came over because I got a job offer. And I, was, I thought, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'll hang out a year and, you know, see how it goes. Um, but Maui is the type of place that either you belong here and it keeps calling you back or you don't belong here and just spits you out and you're gone. <laughs> That's what I've observed with people that try to move here. And so I tried to leave the island a couple of times, you know, just to go back and be closer to my family. One, one time was when my mom was ill and she had cancer. She did eventually pass away. But um, it just there's just always this call to come back, and part of it is just the um, the weather and the you know being in paradise and that. But the other part of it is community, just how easy it is if you're willing to be part of a community to step in and be a contributor. And and what was the job, if you don't mind me asking? I was working as a graphic artist for a printing company, a small printing company in Santa Barbara, California. I um, had a friend in the in the dark room at the printing company who moved over here and got a job with a printing company over here, Skipper Printing. So I came over to visit her and met her boss and her boss offered me a job. So I became a salesperson. So it was kind of interesting going from being a graphic artist to actually being in sales for printing. And that you know, gave me a good sense of the island because I was traveling around the island, going to different restaurants and businesses and trying to sell things like menus and business cards and brochures and things like that. And what was your family like? You, you said you grew up in, in California. What was it like growing up there? Well, I had, a, um, I had a pretty large family. I was the oldest of four girls and I had one older brother. Um, we had a you know, pretty uh, normal childhood um, family growing up. But then when, we, when I was in high school, my dad tried to open up a restaurant um, which did not go well, <laughs> and that was, that was kind of the first of our financial troubles as a family. Um, but I, I was a, a model student, I was a straight-A student, I was into art and writing and ended up um, going in, as a major in journalism um, in, in college. I didn't finish college, but I always try to uh, counsel young people um, about journalism because to me, that gives you the skills, the communication skills you need, written and verbal, to succeed almost anywhere you go. 
And the other thing that I think it's done for me, as, especially in my work as a council member, is it teaches you how to ask the right questions, how to discern quickly what the questions are. Because when you're a journalist, uh, the way they used to teach it, I don't know how they teach it today with all the new technology and everything, but they used to teach you who, what, when, where, why. Mm. And that you ask the important questions, and those questions go into your first and second paragraph. And then you get into all the fluff and stuff after that, because people may not read anymore. So you kind of figure out how to grasp people's attention right away, give them the important information right away. And I think that's what's really helped me, because I get a lot of comments in the public from people saying, wow, we really like the questions you ask and the fact that you're, you're demanding answers. You know, a lot of times mm. I have to go, wait, you haven't answered my question yet. Let me, let's get this you know, answered before we move on. That, that is an interesting thought because you do ask good questions and, and yeah, you, you do push for answers. Um, so, so it's fun that you, you link that back to journalism. But you're professionally not as really all that well known for journalism. You're, you're known more for uh, your involvement with Pacific Biodiesel. So you started that company about 25 years ago now? My husband and I started it 25 years, so we're in our 25th anniversary year, and uh, I'm sure I'm tomorrow meeting with my marketing staff, and these are putting together several celebrations about that. But it's been a long haul, and that industry is still a roller coaster. How did you go from wanting to be in journalism to being in print and design, and then getting involved with Pacific Biodiesel? Well, print and design was it's sort of in that same realm of journalism, yes. you know. I mean, I did end up doing some writing when I was a graphic artist and a lot of designing brochures and I mean, even things like price tags for companies. Um, but that's sort of the art side of my, my background. And I did a lot of writing personally, you know, writing letters to the editor. I used to do that a lot you know, for the Maui News back in the day when it was still locally owned. <laughs> and I did a lot of um, writing for the company you know, writing not just content for um, ads and things, but writing articles for magazines because when we, we were in the forefront of that industry. And so just explaining to people what it is we were doing, what the prospect of it for the future, how it fit into the future of renewable fuels, how it fit into sustainability, required a lot of research, a lot of thought organizing. And I wrote articles for the local um, local papers, but I also, for Biodiesel Magazine, for Biofuels International, I'd get requests from, you know, some of the national trade um, publications to write for them. And everybody was interested in the, the complete cycle of sustainability, which is what our company was about. Yeah. Now, you've been thinking sustainably for, for quite some time. Do you feel like the rest of, of our culture is catching up with you? Do you think you are on the forefront of that? I feel like we were on the forefront of it, but I also feel like people started using that word it's kind of willy-nilly and just because um, it sounded good, and a lot of people don't really to this day know what it actually means. And even some people have told me they're sick of hearing that word and they wish we'd come up with another word. So now you're hearing words like regenerative, restorative, things like that. And really, all of those things are a way of trying to say that we need to not rob from our future generations to keep, you know, to keep the resources available to future generations, to be responsible for our waste, to keep things in a, a cyclical manner. I think that's the crux of any type of sustainability, whether it's financial sustainability or environmental sustainability or vocational sustainability. You need things to continue on in a healthy manner, and you also need them to continue on in a beneficial manner for everybody, not just for a few. Now, did you have any experience, or did your husband have any experience in the energy sector before you, you really got involved with this? My husband was a diesel mechanic for a very long time. He got his journeyman's license on the West Coast at Westport Marine in Washington State. He actually moved to Maui the same year I did, and we ended up meeting here. But uh, so that, his background was as a mechanic, and we had a mechanic shop called King Diesel, which is now, we sold it, it's now called King Power and Marine, and it's owned by a very reputable guy on the, on the island that's done really well with it. Um, but because my, uh, my husband understood the diesel engine, he understood the fuel that was being used in it. And when we, we were in the throes of that business, maintaining uh, and selling generators, one of the one of his projects was the Central Maui landfill, 
So he would go down and maintain the Central Maui landfill generator, and he would hear all the complaints from the co-composting operation about the oil that is, you know, the cooking, used cooking oil, grease trap material, has so much energy in it that it sometimes would just spontaneously combust oh, when wow. they're trying to compost it and start fires. It's kind of the nature of what happens with that material. So it really didn't belong in the landfill. It was also the, the danger of used cooking oil. When people, you know, we all used to grew up putting putting those little cardboard uh, frozen um, orange juice containers, filling it with, with our extra grease, right, sticking in the freezer, and then we throw it in the, when it's full, we throw it in our trash and we send it to the landfill and then it melts over there. And then that kind of stuff back then was susceptible to leaching through the liner and actually mm. you know, poisoning our groundwater. So it was kind of a health hazard, it was a safety hazard. And my husband was telling the composting guys out there back then, this was like early 90s, hey, there's this thing that I think you can make fuel out of it. There's this thing called biodiesel. He remembered from the early days of uh, the oil embargoes in the 70s, the mid to late 70s, when he was a journeyman mechanic at Westport Marine, that the trucking companies would tell their truck drivers, I don't know if people know that that was a time of oil shortages, and so a lot of the truck drivers would get to the station, even the car driver, passenger cars, you'd go to a gas station, and it'd be, it'd be um, you know, run out of fuel. There's no fuel. And the truck driver companies were telling their drivers, if you run out of fuel, if they run out of fuel and you can't get diesel fuel, go to the nearest grocery store, get a five gallon of Western oil and put that in your tank and it'll get you to the next station. No kidding. So Bob remembered this from the 70s and he knew that there was a connection between the cooking oil and fuel. He started researching the, this idea on the internet because the internet superhighway became available around 94, 95 to the, to the average person. Yeah. Um, although we had nowhere near, we no pictures, no moving parts. It was, you know, if you had a, a PC, it was a black screen with yellow letters. <laughs> if you eventually got the Apple, it was a blue screen with, uh, I don't know, black letters or something, or white letters. And But he was fascinated by being able to connect with people around the world about um, issues that some other people had already been delving into. And he found the uh, people who had been researching, who had done the first biodiesel plant um, in the world, in Germany, in Lear, Germany, which uh, was a guy named Houston Kahneman. They developed a kind of a rapport, you know, just back and forth. And they met at a conference. But then he also connected with a researcher at the University of Idaho who they were researching used cooking oil into biodiesel. So with that connection, he started doing some of his own research on Maui. He we actually brought one of the researchers over who quit University of Idaho and became our partner and we built the first biodiesel plant in the Pacific um, here on Maui at the Central Maui Landfill. Back then, Hana Steel was our, our um, landfill diversion expert. She was our recycling expert brought over by um, then Mayor Linda Lingle. And she was so totally fascinating. She just said, I'm going to give you this spot over here at the landfill. Go do whatever it is you're doing. None of us really knew what it was. So we didn't, we didn't know, there were no permits or anything because we didn't know what permits to apply for. So we just built it there. We started, the day it opened, they made used cooking oil illegal to put in the landfill. So all of it went to the biodiesel plant to be made into fuel. And it was a, a, much, um, a much rougher fuel back then, but it, it worked, you know. I mean, there were some complaints about it because it was still, it still was not as pure as it is today. Today we do distillation in the refinery on the Big Island, and it's complete. It's clear like water, and you know has no impurities in it. But it was a. It was kind of the wild west of the biofuel industry back then. We went through the industry went through this bubble, kind of like Silicon Valley, where everybody was investing. You know, just throw money at it. If it says renewable, throw money at it. And a lot of people lost money on it because mm. a lot of the a lot of the proposals that were out there did not work. They were really not thought out very well but we were my husband's a very practical guy and he doesn't like to be in debt and so we didn't go out and borrow hundreds of millions of dollars we just bootstrapped whatever we had and whoever around us wanted to to join it and so we, we grew the company from a very small organic um, just local production to the 5.5 million gallon a year production we have on the big island today but we've also in the meantime built 13 total of 13 biodiesel plants. So we built ones across the U.S., oh, wow. one in Japan for a gentleman who was 
involved in the Winter Olympics um, in Nagano in 1998. So he wanted to run, and he did, he ran um, some of the Winter um, Olympic vehicles on biodiesel so uh, for um, Nagano, Japan. Um, so it was, a, it was a really interesting, you know, we went, Bob went around, and we, I think Pennsylvania, Maryland, Nevada, Texas, Oregon, just all these different areas where people wanted a biodiesel plant. And so we would build them for other people and teach them how to run it and then move on. And the ones that we stayed involved with were um, the Oregon plant, um, because that was a, one of the bigger ones, and the Texas plant, because that was uh, we partnered with Willie Nelson on that. He, he cool. kind of dragged us down there to build the biodiesel plant. <laughs> and, uh, and the ones in Hawaii, of course. That's outstanding. That, that's incredible. 25 years is, is quite yeah. the accomplishment. And as you well know, and especially since you mentioned your father tried to start a restaurant, my father also tried to start a restaurant. It is incredibly difficult yeah. to start any business. And for you guys to make that work, just yeah. I commend you. And we've, we've braved a lot of back and forth uh, levels of support from the federal, state, and you know, we've never really gotten county support except for the city and county of Honolulu. Mm. They've been using biodiesel since, I think, for about 20 years in their diesel fleets. But the um, incentives from the federal government have, have waxed and waned over the years. And what would happen is they would expire. A lot of people in our industry would go out of business. A year later, they would come back retroactive. And this happened four times. And they would mm. come back retroactive for a year and forward for a year. So you'd, you'd, you'd hang on for another year, and then it would expire. And after a while, I think some people just said, I can't hang on like this, you know, and we did because we really believed in it and because we felt like being industry pioneers that we had to, we had to, if we didn't hang in there, who was going to hang in? Um, but we're, you know, we're very proud of having been there at the forefront. When we, for us, it was just a big recycle project and then it turned into, you know, this issue of climate change and sustainability and kind of connecting with communities and people across the globe. Now, when was your first inclination to get involved with government or politics in any way? Well, you know, it's always been driven by need, the needs of the community. I actually ran for office uh, back in 90, the early 90s, I ran for the Board of Education, and that's when I had kids in public school and I was not happy with this public school system. And so I was, um, I was like the mom in tennis shoes, and I was not, you know, I was, <laughs> I just thought, we can't just have the same person always being there, and he was in his 70s, and he wouldn't listen to us when we were trying to lobby for air conditioning for Kihei School and some of the other needs that we had there. So I just thought, well, I'm just going to throw my name in the, in the um, ring. And then, and it was funny, because I, I would start going around the community, and people would just give me money. <laughs> like, and it wasn't big money because when you run for the Board of Education, it's a volunteer position. So you're lucky. I think we raised $10,000, which was a lot for that position. But it was um, not, I think we might have done one fundraiser, but it was really just people, you know, giving us money and, um, oh, we got to get this change happening, that kind of an attitude. And once it got up to the first thousand, I remember my husband telling me, you know, you can't just sit around on your butt anymore. Now you have to go out and campaign because now it's not about you. It's about it's their campaign, you know, the mm. people who donate to it. So I didn't ha really have any money to have my own rallies. So I just kind of piggybacked on other people. People would invite me to the Linda Lingo invited me to all of her rallies when she was running for mayor that year, gave me these glowing recommendations. And the, the other people, the other, there's some other politicians that were around back then that also helped. So I served for four years on the State Board of Education which was completely volunteer. I mean, they covered our expenses, but there was no salary. And I, after I got done with that, because I think I was probably the most active board member back then too, I was the only one of the, of the 13 board members who had my phone number in the phone book, because I was back before cell phones. And so I get calls all the time. I became actually quite agoraphobic and I, because I, I wouldn't go shopping or anything because I would be in, a, in Costco for four hours talking to everybody about their kid's problem at school. Oh, wow. Uh, but it was a good experience in that I felt like I was really effective and I felt like um, I, I was probably one of two people on the board back then who had kids in public school. And all the rest of them either had private school kids or they were retired. And how many people were on the board? 
Well, there are 13 people. It's a state board of education. There's only one from Maui, one from Kauai, one from Big Island, and all the rest 10 are from Oahu. So I'm the representative for all of the schools throughout the Maui County. It was a it was a huge responsibility, and it was um, it was hard to make a difference if you weren't out there every day. So it was actually became a full time job for me that I didn't get paid for. And when I finished that stint, I told Bob, I, I, after the first four years, I stepped down because my daughter was turning 13 and I just couldn't be on Oahu all the time anymore. Mm. I just had to be around for her. And I told my husband, if I ever try to run for anything else, just slap me upside the head. <laughs> 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 and then, you know, this happened where um, I actually got asked about 20 years ago or maybe 15 years ago, a few years after I got off the board in 98, to run for county council. Some of the community members came to me. I got asked by the Republican Party to run for the State House of Representatives in South Maui. I got asked by the Democratic Party to run for the State House of Representatives. And for that race, I, used, I told both of them, well, if I did run, I would run as an independent because I wasn't registered for either party back then. And they were, well, we can't help you then because you have to be in our party. And I said, you just told me I'm the best qualified person in my district to be in this office but now you're telling me only if I use your label. Mm. And so that kind of turned me off and I was off of politics for a while. But you know, this, this latest one was my people in my community and in the greater community just begging, literally, you know, I mean, one guy had to say, get off your knees <laughs> because they, they um, felt like it was so important to have someone with my background, someone who was, um, who was, kind of coming from the business aspect, but also environmental aspect, and um, having having been in a sustainability model, being able to um, create that vision, because we don't have a lot of visionaries in public service, public office. So I think that's what, saw, what the public saw. There aren't a whole lot of people with those qualifications who want to be in public office, because it's hard. When you leave yourself open for attack, um, if I was if I was going to try to thwart every lie that's been told about me, that's all I'd be doing, and really you'll you'll get nothing else done. So you have to have a really thick skin. You have to be able to set all that aside and just say I'm going to focus on the future. I'm going to focus on the issues, things like the climate issues, the injection well case, the affordable housing issues, invasive species, and all those things that there's work to be done. You, if you were a very sensitive person, and um, which we do have some of those people on the council, but not a whole lot of people with uh, a successful years of uh, business background behind them. So I, I thought, well, you know, let me see if we can actually make this change in the council by having someone like me. Because I talk to people like me all the time that have that kind of same similar backgrounds, have a lot of years of of working in either an industry or a business or community service, and they all say, oh, I could never do that. You're crazy. And oh, I, actually, I, I certainly wouldn't do it. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you'd be great at it. I think you would be great, but you have to think about all, you know, and I, I kind of, I've always been community-minded. I've always, I, I looked at this as kind of like jury duty. Okay, I'm gonna go and serve my time and try to help the community, and then I'll get out. And I really, I really like that idea of electing people who, who don't really want to be in office, who don't let this turn into their identity, because mm. it's a dangerous thing when this becomes your identity, when the title becomes who you are. So I try to tell people, think of it as something you're doing, not who you are. And you're going to be who you are. You need to be who you are today. And you need to be who that person is when you're in office, and you need to be that person when you get out of office. And if this office changes you into somebody else, then you've let it define you. That's, to me, really dangerous for politicians because then they spend a lot of time trying to hang on to that title. Yeah. And making decisions that allow them to hang on to that title. So for me, that's been kind of one of my strengths is that it, I don't need this title. I have a lot of other titles and I have a lot of other things that I'm, uh, I've been successful in that I've done in my, pri in my private life. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be grandma. <laughs> I'm a tutu now. But when you let it define you, you start making different decisions than you would if you were thinking about it as community service and how am I going to make the best decision for the county. 
So I think we saw a little bit of that just in recently when we when we appointed the county clerk. I heard language about my friend and you know the the family of this person and that person, and that's what you can do that in private business. You can make decisions to help someone further their career or to honor their family. But when you're a public service, you're supposed to be making the best decisions for the entire county, for yes. what's best for the county to run. Now, you you touched on something. As commonly, we hear this, this notion that government should be run like a business. We need business people in government. Um, this, and by no means to compare you to, to Trump or Bloomberg, but that's often the argument that's put forward on the national level to support their candidacies for president. Um, I've often been skeptical of the notion that um, the same way you can operate a business is how you can operate government. But I would, I would love to hear your thoughts on it as somebody who's been successful in both local government and business. Um, what skills transfer over and were there any areas that you were surprised that did not function in a way that, that suited your, your business mindset? You mean in the county? Yeah. Yeah, there are def definitely um, areas, not necessarily a surprise, there are areas that I thought I got into this position to change. And one of them is there is a, a fair amount of cronyism in, in in county government. Once you get in here, and I think the new council members found that too, that once you get in, you see how easy it is to kind of fall into that because there are people you know, you feel comfortable with, and you're happy to have them around you. But maybe you didn't look far enough to make sure you got the most qualified. And those are mistakes that businesses make too. We made that mistake in our early days of Pacific Biodiesel because we would hire people who were so enthusiastic. They were so excited about, oh my God, you're making grease into fuel. I want to work for you. And then we'd hire them and then we'd find out they didn't really have the skills we needed, but it was hard to let them go because we liked them and they, were, they brought their enthusiasm. Well, what we ended up finding out is that if you hire people with the skills, They'll develop the enthusiasm, but if you hire people with enthusiasm, don't, they don't necessarily have the mm. skills to, to bring to bear. So I understand how those mistakes can be made and how you can fall into that that uh, mindset because there aren't real. There's no bottom line that you're affecting. Like in business, you have to change because you're not going to make money if you hire unqualified people. In government, you don't necessarily see that bottom line because you're not. The people stay in these jobs, and you don't necessarily see what would have happened if you would have hired the more qualified person <clears throat> as far as the bottom line. So that that's kind of one of the things that surprised me is that I, I'm getting a better understanding of why these things happen and how they happen, but I don't, I don't know that, that there's a, an answer right now to how to change it because I don't think there's a real acceptance of a business model at the county level. I've always been a big proponent of the county manager because I think we, if we had somebody who just focused on getting affordable housing bill, eliminating invasive species, addressing the injection well pollution issues, and not having to worry about re being reelected, mm. and also not having to worry about um, if their job ends when the mayor an uh, leaves, does, either doesn't get reelected or, or gets termed out, then they have to be political and they have to support their boss so that they can stay in, in the position and that that there's no, they know there's no continuity be, beyond that four-year term. But a county manager, like what, how it happens in other areas is that that person can be hired on contract. If that person's doing a good job and getting results, you can keep that person on for 20, 30 years. They can outlast several mayors if they're doing a good job and if, it's, if that's recognized. So that's what a lot of us, I think, in the community would like to see is a, that a, a, a small attempt to depoliticize the, the services that need to happen through the administration. Now, I have um, I've been a proponent of extending council terms. Um, personally, I, I think the fact that you guys have to run every two years probably limits your ability to do things outside of the concerns as far as re-election or, or politicizing. Uh, do you worry, though, that a county manager position would either take away from the power of the county council or take away from the power of the mayor? And would that be a, a good thing or a bad thing? I don't think it would take away from the power. I think it might take away from a lot of the distraction because, and actually I use, I'm probably one of the few council members that has a, an excellent rapport with the mayor's executive assistant who's the liaison to South Maui. I see the 
the questions about things like the the recent um, sand removal to another place in Kihei versus going up to um, to West Maui. Uh, plus, there are things like where if someone wants to see another crosswalk or what's ha you know if there's a violent an issue of violence at the at Kalama Park or some of the other things that are happening. I see those as administrative. So I'm a, I'm very um, I'm very good at calling up our community liaison, who's our liaison to the administration, and saying, hey, can you deal with these things? Can you follow up on this? And he is like excellent. It's amazing. He just he'll follow up with the people. He'll he'll get them an answer. He'll try to get some resolution. And so we're working really well together. And it's allowing me to focus a little more on policy, which is where the council's purview is. It doesn't stop the complaints from coming to me, but at least I have a partner in trying to figure out how to address them. But it, it's not happening in every community on this island. The liaisons don't necessarily work. Some of the council members don't even know who their liaison is. Mm. Um, so it, it takes a lot of work and effort to develop that relationship, but you have to also have a willing partner on the other side who, who he comes to every community association meeting in South Maui. He comes to the South Maui Advisory, um, you know, com committees that we've been, uh, the meetings that we've been holding, and I feel lucky, but I, that's why we, that's the kind of the expectation of a county manager, is somebody who will take some of the day-to-day -day, uh, uh, actions that have to happen to fulfill the vision of the mayor and the council, and do the work outside of the the pressures of the council outside of the pressures even of the mayor that's that's the dry that's the dream mm. there's also the devil's advocate well what if you get a council that's micromanaging or what if you get a mayor that that won't let that person do their job and is overbearing and tries to get rid of them because they don't like them there all those things are could happen yeah it's part of democracy i mean democracy is messy and yes. you take a chance. I mean, look where we're at, you know, in the greater, on the federal level. You take a chance when you vote somebody in. And there's no system you could develop that would be ironclad successful. There's nothing that is going to be guaranteed to work without the right people in place. And so that's what I tell people when they go, well, what if this happens? Or what if, what if we don't like our council member and they don't, they don't work well with the, the county manager? Well, that's true of everything, you know, everybody you vote in. You could vote somebody really good in that could enhance all the systems, take advantage of the systems that are in place and make them work. Or you could, you could, be, you could elect somebody in who tries to thwart all the systems, ignore them. I mean, we have somebody like that as president. He doesn't believe in the rule of law, and he doesn't care that there are laws. That's not, that doesn't mean we have bad laws. It means we have bad politicians. Yeah. So I can't, no, there's nothing I could say to guarantee to anybody that any of the systems that I'm trying to put in place will be 100% foolproof. All I can say is this is what I'd like to see as a citizen and as a person sitting in this office because this would make my life easier. This would give me the avenues to bring more people in and more people means more help, more input, and more satisfaction from the electorate. Now, one of the, the big issues that the realtors are concerned with, but really it's just Hawaii has really been focused on this in the media, is affordable housing. By many accounts, we have a housing crisis. Right. Um, what I would like to know is, is, one, I guess, do you agree with that? Do you think there is a housing crisis? Um, two, what do you think the, the causes might be? I'm, I'm assuming that you probably think there are more than one. And, and what are some solutions that you might propose? Well, some of them have been um, started already in the, my previous term with the previous council, and that is the, all the illegal short-term rentals. That's yeah. one of the causes. So we've been starting to crack down on that, and now we've got this $20,000 fine hanging out there. I've actually been told by some of the realtors that I talked to that, that people they know that have had illegal short-term rentals are now closing that up and renting long-term. So that's great. that seems like it's, and I've talked to people who have told me that it's easier to find a long-term rental these days. It's not, it's not so clammed up and so high end. So I think that's working a little bit, being able to clamp down on the illegals. 
But the, the council, other, oh, sorry to interrupt. Okay. Um, the, the council did a study where, where they hired an outside contractor to look at the, the number of illegal short-term rentals, and it, it was significantly lower than, than had been expected. Is that correct? Well, most of, it wasn't lower, but most of them were, uh, were part of that, the, the Minotoya list, mm. you know, so they've been grandfathered in. So the, the the I think the council the people on the council they've been talking about how do we how do we get rid of this minatoya list where people for year, there's, there's thousands of units on there that have been that aren't zoned for a short term rental that have been allowed to do this I don't know if that's going to happen in the short term but definitely there were something like at least fifteen hundred illegal rentals that have been identified and I think a lot of those are I wouldn't say the majority because I really don't know how many but a lot of those have either been enforced upon or people are just, I'm not going to do this because now there's, I could get fined $20,000. Mm. But the, the, one of the problems I see from past years, because it's been a decade of hearing that we don't have affordable housing on this yeah. island. So it's, not, it's nothing new. Yeah, at least. You hear every year and then nothing would happen every year. And I feel like more has happened in the last couple of years than probably in the last 10 years altogether in that we've seen more of a focus on the the lower income. To me, that's one of the problems is they've, the councils and the county in general have been perpetuating the top end of the affordable rental or the affordable housing, so the 80 to 140 percent. And there's been a, a bigger and bigger disparity between the lower income trying to find places to live, even rentals, um, and being able to um, being able to find a house at that higher end because of the um, the requirement going to 25 percent. So you only have to, if you want to build a, a project, you only have to have 25 percent of it affordable to be in this affordable housing program. So we have that means we have to build 75 houses, market price houses, in order to get 25 affordables. Mm. The last year or two, we've been seeing people like Kaiko Ohana, Doug Bigley and his group, come out and do 100% affordable rental projects. That's going to make a huge difference. When The first one's opening up in April, I believe, Kaiwahini Village, 118 units. And these are for the 30 to 60% AMI. So these are people at the low end who could be making less than $30,000 a year. They could get a two-bedroom apartment for $511 a month. So they're actually going to be able to save some money towards some other, th or maybe get rid of that third job or their, even even their second and third job. Once we get enough of the, the, I think the very lower end people taken care of, I think that's almost like a trickle up effect. And what happens, it, it happened right, I was talking to the manager of the Kaiwahini, the managing, um, the company that's the managing company, he, he told me that he was talking to the manager of one of the apartment, local apartment buildings in South Maui, who was losing about six or eight, I think, of her tenants to this affordable housing project, who got picked in the lottery. Her comment was, I guess I'm going to have to lower my rents because now I'm competing. So, yay. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. exactly what we want, right? And that right, right there made me think, we don't really have to build our way out of all, we don't have to build 12,000 units if that's what we need by 2025. There's some area we get up to halfway there, or I don't know, maybe it's two thirds, but at some point the market's gonna start writing itself because there are more, more units on the market and there's competition and it's gonna lower some of those rents, it's gonna lower some of the housing costs to be more affordable and we'll get hopefully more local people living in it and less people from the mainland that own these empty houses. So I don't think that we necessarily have to build our way completely out of this, this problem. I think some, there's gonna be some, at some point where it's going to be, there's gonna be this domino effect of, of uh, the average price of housing and rents coming down. Mm. No, I, I agree with the domino effect. I, I think that's spot on. My my concern is that even with the domino effect bringing down the price of rent and, and housing, um, it won't address the deficit. And and that's my, my concern that we still have a, a huge deficit of housing units. I, I think the, the current estimated need by 2025 has dropped to 10,000 housing units. Um, yeah, ten, it's between ten and twelve. Yeah, is what I hear. Yeah. And and part of that is is in part because people are leaving the island. 
um, because of affordability issues, just lifestyle issues and job opportunities on the mainland. Are you concerned about, one, having enough units, and two, are you concerned about the impact of people leaving the islands because of economic opportunity? I am concerned about the impact of people who were born and raised here leaving the islands. Like if someone comes here and lives here for two years and leaves the island, I'm not that concerned about that. Yeah. You know, because we have a lot of that. There is a lot of that. Yeah. But a lot of but, it is, is people's children yes, and grandchildren. And I think there's a concerted effort to for the developers, and there's another smaller, I think, 35, 40 units uh, affordable housing. Uh, it's 100% affordable housing. That's a couple, it's in North Kihei below the highway, which is a couple blocks from where I live. And I talk to that developer all the time, he's a friend of mine. But I think there's a concerted effort to get local people into these homes by, by in some of them, if they're, if they're federally funded, they use HHFDC funds, they can't, they can't limit it to just local people. Mm. But they can do things like, you know, they can make rules like you have to pick up your application in person and you have to, you know, nobody's, nobody who needs affordable housing can fly over here and pick up an application and, you know. So those are the, some of the tools that they use. The project on Kaiola, which is the, the 35 to 42, something like that, that project, it, because they're not taking federal funds, they can actually limit who gets in there. And the intention is to try that, because that's going to be workforce housing uh, level. The intention is to try to first put people in those homes who work in the air, who are teachers or firefighters or, uh, or uh, other professions like that in South Maui to try to keep that community together. And we're part of what we're trying to limit too is people having to drive across the island for their job, right? That's yeah. part of what we need with the affordable housing is to have it have it appropriately placed so that it's cutting down on some of the other inconveniences that we have like traffic. Yeah. Now that um I got two more issues questions that I want to ask you. I know we're limited on time, but one of the things that that you talked about in previous elections, which by the way, are you running again? I am running again. I haven't had a chance to get down to the... I just have to go to the seventh floor and yeah. I haven't had a chance to get down there to pull papers, but that's my intention at this ha, point. Has your husband warned you not to run? Has he followed your directions? No, he's actually really super supportive, um, uh, almost unfortunately for me, because that means I keep running. But he he actually has taken over a lot of the domestic, you know, the cooking and the yard work and stuff, and the, the even planning vacations and planning trips to see our grandkids. He's been just amazing on top of running our company. Excellent. Um, now, as far as industry and economic opportunity, um, what industries would you like to see Maui County investing in? And, and how do you think they should be investing in, in these industries? Because one of the, the focuses of your last campaign was that um, tourism is, people get a bit myopic on tourism being the only industry for Maui. And really, if we want to be sustainable and we want to provide economic opportunities for everybody, we, we do need to sort of broaden the umbrella. Mm -hmm. um, so where would you like to see that going? Well, first, agriculture. I'd like to see us expand agriculture and agricultural products because there are a lot of people that want to do that here, but they don't have the necess necessarily the wherewithal or the means to do it. There's some programs that have been started, like the FAM program, the Farmer Apprentice Mentorship Program, mm. which my good friend Phyllis runs, that are training new farmers. And sometimes they train, they get people in these programs who decide, nah, that's not for me, which is just as valuable as <laughs> finding out that it is for you because you need to know what you can't do as well as you, what you can do. But there's so much potential here. There's a lot of fallow land here. If we could just get Mahi Pono to let loose with those lands that they say they're going to lease to the local farmers. And then we could, as a county, and I think we're getting some money from the state too, support the processes that are missing. Because someone could plant a field of tomatoes, say, but getting it to market or getting it to a processor to make into tomato products, tomato food products, and then getting it to the sales piece, are the one, are, those are the things that people need help with. And they call they call it a food hub where you would mm. you know you have a hub where you different farmers can bring their products and they can process them there and you know make them into jams or jellies or chutneys or things like that or other products. We we aren't we are not um, 
traditionally a manufacturing county. Yeah. And that's what I'd like to see us get into more too, is more manufacturing. So that we're making more products that we use here and then we can also export them as, as we have such a good brand. The Maui brand is, is amazing. And as long as we keep Maui as the paradise that we all know and love, we're gonna keep that brand. And that's why the environment is so important because if we trash our environment, the brand goes with it. And, and that's what I wanna to get to next, the Climate Action and Resilience Committee. So how did you come up with this and what is your goal for it? My goal is to try to look at actionable ordinances and policies that do the three, address three things. One is climate mitigation, doing our part for climate mitigation. And we have, as a council, made a commitment to the Paris Accord, mm. even though at the state level, you know, I mean, at the federal level, the, the president has pulled out. So we joined a coalition of counties and cities that have decided we are gonna look at the Paris Accord and follow these, these um, policies. We've also declared a climate emergency on December 20th, we passed out RESO, which means we understand the urgency. So aside from climate mitigation, I mean, along with climate mitigation, we need to also look at things like potential climate-related hazards, what could be prevented, and the ones that we can't prevent that we know may be coming, how do we respond to those? So we're working closely with the Maui Emergency Management Agency, which I'm, I'm so thrilled to be working with those guys because they've brought on a climate scientist, which for the first time we have somebody within that agency that can talk about what's happening with the climate from a scientific meteorologist point of view. And not, we're not just supposing what might happen. We've actually got some data. So those are, those are issues, and some of the things that may come out of it is helping develop a model for agriculture, regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture is at the top of most people's climate action lists now. Oh. Saying that that's, those are the things, agriculture is going to affect what happens with climate the most. And there are things we can do to actually bring our emissions down to that level of 350 that we're all looking for. Planting trees is a big one. Yeah. So we need to support that. Regenerating the soil is huge, is huge. It's like the number one thing on Paul Hawkins' book, uh, Drawdown, is now regenerative agriculture. So we need to support that. We also need to look at what we're doing within the SMA, the special management area, and the inundation, the sea level rise inundation area. If we have to make a, an ordinance that says no more building, no more infrastructure within the sea level rise inundation zone, and try to figure out what data we're gonna use for that. Are we gonna use one and a half feet? Are we gonna use three feet? Are we gonna use six feet? Mm. Those are things that I think the committee needs to explore, bring in the expertise so that we can agree this is the data that we believe is going to affect us. And we're hearing from the experts that sea level rise is not gonna affect all communities the same. Island communities are the most at risk. Mm. It's, not, it's gonna affect us worse than it will affect people on the East Coast even though we're, you know, we both have coasts. So the wave action has a lot to do with it. The vulnerability of being out here in the middle of the Pacific has a lot to do with our, our potential mitigations. We are, Maui particularly has been extremely lucky in that, I mean, we've had some horrible fires and, and those people agree are, are climate related, but we haven't had that hundred year storm that's wiped out half our island we we are I, you know we don't know it could be coming and yeah. a lot of people think it's just a matter of time so we have to figure out we're starting to uh, look at resiliency hubs and so hopefully we'll be able to pass legislation that makes that easier and supports hubs in each community resiliency hubs so that when those things do happen we have centers where there's food and blankets and shelter and clothing and uh, and communication. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, I saw that on the agenda just a couple of weeks ago and it's it's sort of shocking that it's only now yes, that, that we're coming is. up with the idea. It is, really. When, when Hurricane Iniki hit, I don't know, it was about 20 years ago or something like that, or was it more? Was it, was it, maybe it was back oh, I think it's 30, more. 30 years ago. Yeah. When, when that hurricane hit, one of the, because we were in the generator business, we spent all, the hurricane hit on a Friday, we spent all weekend looking for every generator we could get off the mainland. 
and then uh, by Monday they were all sold out. But we were shocked to find out that Kauai, who got hit the hardest, had no generator backup for their water system. Oh, wow. So all the water was being flown in in water bottles. You can imagine the hundreds of thousands of water bottles they flew in just to, for drinking water. That is incredible. Well, and, when, and when you're the generator business, you're like, how could that be? You know, that kind of, when that hurricane hit, that put the word generator on the map and everybody was all of a sudden looking for a generator. Yeah, I think folks are, are largely, I guess, a little too optimistic for their own good sometimes. We, we think because that huge storm hasn't hit recently that it's right. just not going to. Or we're also, we get complacent and if it hasn't mm. affected us, I mean, how, how many other areas of our lives do we just not worry about because it doesn't seem like it affects us? Very true. Very true. Um, let me get to these, these five questions because we only have about five minutes left. Okay. And you know, feel free to, to take your time, surprise me with any of your answers. Okay. Um, first off, what book would you recommend? My favorite book from when I was a kid was To Kill a Mockingbird. Excellent. I love To Kill a Mockingbird. I love that book and it really shaped my idea of fairness and justice from the, from that time on. I just, you know, when you're, especially when you're a little girl because you can relate to Scout, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now, did you more relate, well, I guess now, looking back on To Kill a Mockingbird, do you more relate with Scout or do you more relate with Atticus? Well, I used to relate to Scout, um, but I think now I relate to Atticus more. And it's interesting you ask me that because my last term on the council, I sat next to Don Guzman, who's an attorney, and he used to tell me all the time, you should have been an attorney. You know, because the questions you ask and the way you ask them, you, do, you act just like an attorney. <laughs> so now I kind of think that way, right? Because you're trying to get at information that is meaningful, that's going to have a result of something happening. So yeah, now I kind of relate to the, the attorney in the book. Yeah. What is guaranteed to make you smile? My husband, my grandchildren, well, my children too. But uh, the number one thing I can say on this island is probably sunflowers. Sunflowers. You have those fields, right? The, we do. The sunflower fields. We do. And to me, I mean, sunflowers are beautiful anyway. And I don't know of anybody who doesn't smile when they see one. And you have that image in your head of a sunflower with a happy face on it. But to me, it symbolizes the culmination of a dream because I worked on it for 15 years of the idea of biofuel crops and, and specifically sunflowers. And people telling me that's never going to happen because oil's too cheap and land's too expensive. And I used to tell them, because I did a lot of research on it, and I talked to people in France and Spain and people who are growing sunflowers, that it's not going to, you, you can't grow almost any crop. I think it's true of almost any crop now. You can't grow it for just one product. You have to have multi-value um, multi products off of a crop. Mm. So if you just tried to grow it for, for biodiesel, yeah, it wouldn't work. But if you can get some high-end products off of it, like now we're we're actually processing, we have a food processing uh, uh, crusher on the Big Island, so we're actually making sunflower culinary oil and selling it to restaurants. It is sold out almost every time we bring a batch back, but uh, we're doing that with with uh, the macadamia nut oil as well, and we have a line of cosmetic oils that we're selling for skin use because that is. Macadamia nut oil is the best oil you can put on your skin. So, barring the only thing better than that, according to my research, is sea buckthorn berry, and you can only find that in the Himalayas. So, <laughs> so it's right here, and we're and then we've added that we we did get a hemp permit, so we've been growing hemp, and we've, we're going to do CBD extraction, so we can add that as a value added to the skincare products. That is so, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, you got to do what you got to do. We've been beat up pretty much by the Trump administration's EPA on the renewable fuel standard. So a lot of renewable fuel companies are struggling right now, including us. And the way to get through that is to diversify, turn, you know, diversify and, and make some high value products. And we are, I think the reason why our company survived when so many others were going out of business is flexibility. Mm. And you think you're going to do this and then you go, that's not working. Okay, what else can we do? But I use that a lot in this office, too. You know, a lot of times you just have to go, okay, that's not going to work. What else can we do? Excellent. When have you failed, and what did you learn from it? I was thinking about this question a lot because I don't really think of it as failure 
any, something, when you try to do something and it doesn't happen, it's either it hasn't happened yet or you decided it wasn't worth the effort and the resources it takes to make it happen. And it sort of goes to my philosophy of not having to say no ever. I try, when people ask me, can you, do you think you could do something about this? I'll use the chickens for one example because people bring that up every once in a while and I'll say, you know, here's the chickens over here and over here on the priority list is affordable housing, climate change, invasive species, the injection wells and things like that. Wastewater is a big issue. And, but I would be happy to help you if you wanted to start a volunteer group and go pick up the chickens and maybe you guys could find a way to process them into something like maybe smoked chicken feed is a, can be a big deal. I don't know, but you know, I, I'd be happy to help you find a way to do it. And if you can identify the resources and the energy it's going to take, and, and this is true with almost every problem that, that people have, there's, there's nothing is impossible if you're willing to spend the time the energy, the resources, usually the dollars on it, you can make it happen. But a lot of people don't have that kind of time. Mm. A lot of people don't want to take that kind of time. And so they're just, they're, they'll throw their hands up and give up. But it, it's their decision. So I always look at things that I haven't been able to affect as, well, it's not going to, it's not worth that time and energy and resource. I think I'll do something else instead. Or, it is, but it's going to take more time, mm. you know, and I'll get there eventually. I mean, the, the sunflower field is a perfect example because I would have at one point, if you had asked me that, I might have said I failed to follow through with the biofield crop project, but it just took a lot longer than I thought, and it took a lot more perse perseverance. No failures. You just got to be patient. I that's like right. that. That's, that's a good answer. Uh, what's something you've changed your mind on? Um, how long it takes to affect change in government. How long did you think yeah. it took? Well, I thought the last election was sort of a referendum, and I thought we were going to be able to kind of change the, you know, the political game. And I don't know, I'm still struggling with, well, did we just change the players? We didn't really change the game. It's a long game. Mm. And I've had people say this to me, like Gary Hoosier, who you know runs the Kuleana Academy. He goes, Kelly, it's a long game, and it's not that easily changed. It's, there's, it has to be incremental, I think. And I don't think the general electorate is really ready for that kind of change. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see if we ever get things like that county, gover county manager on the ballot. But the more I sit here from this vantage point, the more I see, yeah, I was pushing maybe too fast to try to affect the change that I thought we were ready for. And now I think maybe we're not quite ready for it. Yeah, I am. Um you know, I have Dave DeLeon's old job, and Dave DeLeon did the job for 10 years before Lawrence did the job for, mm -hmm. for two years. And it's fascinating to me looking at Dave's old notes because you see the same names and the same yeah. issues from a decade ago, yeah. and they're still at play today. Do you, do you think the system can be changed? Uh, I think this next generation can maybe do that. I don't think it can be done with because there's still so many people from the generation that like things the way they were and are fighting tooth and nail to keep the status quo. Mm. So I think it's going to, I think it, it can be changed eventually. They have to. They, things have to change. Status quo is not healthy. And how fast we get that change is going to depend on our next generation and how active they are, I think. But there are people, I mean, I see, I see it in some of the people, like, you know, one of my colleagues is a teacher. And when the kids come in and testify, it affects him. Actually, we have two people on our council who, are, who have been teachers. And so if they can come and continue to rise up with that voice, I think there is a, a, a measure of my age population and older that's going to be affected by that because it's a strong voice and because we know it's the right thing to do when the next generation is telling us. Right now, I'm concerned because there's a lot of crying out for change and leadership by our younger generations, but they don't know what, exactly what to ask for. Mm. I've been to climate strikes and marches and rallies, and everybody says, time for action now, but there's not a specific action call. Yeah. So I'm working on, I'm, I've got this youth program I'm trying to build to bring youth in and train them on how to deliberate and research issues and then formulate ideas of 
policies or ordinances or, or legislation that can, that can change the way we're dealing with, we address our environmental concerns or we address our housing concerns or any, whatever their concerns are. It's a, if they can learn this kind of skill early, I think this is, we're going to have an amazing uh, next generation of leaders. And one last question, what is one piece of advice that you would give to anyone listening? I think I said it earlier, but I guess the one piece of advice I would give is know who you are without your title. Mm. You know, I spoke at the Kuleana Academy a couple years ago. Gary asked me to come and talk to these future candidates. And I asked them to describe themselves with three words. I went around the room and everybody used, you know, whatever three words they thought best describe themselves. And I said, okay, if that's who you are, then be that person when you run for office and, and let people know who you are. But be that person if you don't win, be that person if you win, and be that person when you're done with that office. Don't turn into I'm so-and-so state legislator, and then when you lose that title, you don't know who you are. Mm, that's great advice, and I'm gonna steal that question. Describe <laughs> okay. yourself in three words, I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, and um, I, I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Jason, this has been awesome. Excellent. Really fun. All right, thanks for listening, bye.